Take your Bible and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. And while you're finding Nehemiah chapter 8, and we'll be looking at verses 13 through 18, the last few verses of the chapter, I just kind of want to share with you from my heart as a pastor for a few minutes, and, and then I'm hoping that what we'll look at this evening will help with this and be of some assistance. I've been um, in the ministry for a number of years now, and so I've had the chance to kind of do my own longitudinal study, I guess you could call it, of just church members. I've, I've had the opportunity to observe church members, observe even my own heart in the church. And one of the greatest delights, I think about what I get to do in preaching the Word, is to watch, um, over the course of time, to watch perhaps a new believer or a believer who hasn't been exposed to the, to the real in-depth preaching of the Word in their lifetime and then as they begin to, one of my great joys is to watch a softening of the heart, a, an enlarging of the ability to love one another, a, a, a greater capacity to forgive and to love and to be tender and to be humble. This is the church member that over the course of years, he almost can't do anything to upset him. He almost can't do anything to irritate him. That the, they're always praying for their leaders. They're always in, in love with the, the body, always serving. And it's, it's a joy to me that I can name numbers, numbers of church members since I've been here almost a decade now that I have never one time heard a complaint, never one time heard a, 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 an ill word. And that's the result of the preached word of God just softening the heart. Remember when you're a little kid and you get that, that can of Play-Doh and it's brand new and it's all nice and soft and then you stuff it back in and then about the fifth time you get it out, there's those little crumbly parts that aren't any good anymore. The other side of that is that I've also had the opportunity to see and, and to my great sadness to see church members that just, for whatever reason, don't soften up. They just don't whether it's a salvation issue or a pride issue or a lack of humility, whatever you want to call it, I don't know. But I do know I've observed it. I do know that this is the person that becomes more and more angry, more and more discontent. It goes from a few things in the church are wrong to the whole church is wrong to the leadership is wrong. It's... It's sad to watch because this is a person then who begins sometimes a pattern of going from church to church and is never happy. And then you finally, they end up on, on Twitter or on Facebook and they have judged that no church on planet earth is good enough for them. And I've seen that progression in people who seem to have followed Christ. And I, the only answer I know is to encourage toward a softness of heart, to encourage towards Loving the Lord with all your heart and loving one another with all of your heart and being as forgiving as God and Christ has forgiven you. And I'm hoping that tonight we'll kind of put together some of the pieces to help with that. Because what I'd like to talk about tonight is the connection between obeying the Lord and the joy we have in the Lord. And that, that joy is manifested in that softness of heart, that delight in one another, delight in the church, delight in what Christ is doing and I really think that one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith is that connection between obedience to the Lord and joy that we have as a believer in Christ. 
And that person I'm speaking of is the little crumbly bits. They don't have any joy. They're, they're often smart. They're often very judgmental. They often have long lists of why this church is not right or that church is not right. But they don't have joy. And this is quite a theme all throughout Scripture, just in the New Testament alone. Galatians 5.22 reminds us that one of the fruits of the Spirit of, the God, of God in the believer is the, the fruit of walking in joy. And that's obedience to the Lord brings joy. The Apostle Paul was obedient to the Lord even to suffer for Christ. And he said that he actually rejoiced in his suffering. That's, that's a phenomenal thought, to rejoice in your suffering on behalf of Christ in the church. In Colossians 2 verse 5, Paul reports rejoicing over the good order of the Colossian church, that they were as a church, as a whole, following the Lord and seeking after Christ. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 13, 17, that obedient church members create joy for the shepherds of the church and not groaning for them. James chapter 1 even commands us to consider it all joy whenever we face various trials. Why is that? Because it leads to spiritual stability, endurance, which is obedience. In 1 Peter 4.13, Peter exhorts us to joy. He says, to the degree you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also with the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. When we think about, I think one of my favorite passages about joy and obedience. The Apostle John, in 2 John 4, he reports of believers walking in the truth and he's filled with joy because of this, because of their obedience. And as many of these references have also indicated, obedience is often in the context of suffering. That obedience is not the easy path. Obedience is the difficult path. And yet that's the pathway to genuine Christian joy. We've said it often here over the years that Ephesians 4 through 6 really serves as a manifesto of the Christian life and that if you take it at face value, endeavoring to to walk in these commands or not endeavoring to walk in these commands, that will really determine your joy in the Lord. And I'm just going to walk through it. You don't have to turn there, but let me just walk through Ephesians 4 through 6. This is the key to our joy. That if you are, by the power of God and His Word, loving the Lord by responding well to the shepherding of the shepherds of the church. If you're being equipped and useful for service to Christ in His church, if you're growing in doctrine and maturity so that you're not tossed around by every spiritual fad, every new thing that comes along, if you're speaking the truth in love to one another, if you're truly affixing yourself to the body of Christ, which causes the growth of the church being all in, if you're putting on the new man of righteousness and holiness of the truth, if you're laying aside falsehood, what does that mean? That includes excuses, subtle lies, manipulation, gossip, slander. You want anything to do with any of that. If you're not letting anger make you sin and the only time you allow yourself to be angry is when you're angry at the things that God is angry at. If you're not stealing, but you're working If you're not letting corrupting words come out of your mouth, words that cause others to think badly of other brothers and sisters, it causes division, causes strife, it causes grief to the Holy Spirit. If you're guarding your own heart against bitterness and anger and wrath and slander and malice, if you're intentionally being kind to one another, 
tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. If you're walking in love, just as Christ loved us. If you're being extremely careful about sexual immorality, even being hinted at in the church, no filthiness or coarse joking, but instead giving thanks. If you're, in fact, part of exposing deeds of darkness. If you're intentionally walking in wisdom on purpose, making the very best use of the time every day because we live in evil times. If you're seeking to understand the Lord's will, if you're not being drunk with wine, not controlled by substances, not controlled by anything, if you're gathering together to worship, to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and you're giving thanks together and singing to one another and to the Lord, if you're being sensitive to each other, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, letting it okay to be wrong, deferring to each other for the sake of relationship, if wives are lovingly and joyfully being subject to their husbands as to the Lord, showing them tremendous respect and honor and dignity, if husbands are, are joyfully loving their wives as Christ loves the church, making certain your wives are washed in the Word of God just as Christ washes the church with the Word, nourishing and cherishing her as someone who's precious to you, if children, specifically those in Christ, are obeying their parents, because they love the Lord. If parents are not provoking children to frustration and anger, but disciplining them and instructing them in the Lord. If slaves, anyone in a position to submit to another person, if they're being obedient to masters with fear and trembling, not just outwardly, but with a true inward heart of submitting to God as a slave of Christ, fully trusting that the Lord will reward that service. If masters, anyone in authority over others, not being threatening or abusive or authoritarian, but kind and sensitive, knowing that you have a master who is in heaven. If you're intentionally growing in spiritual strength to ward off the schemes of the devil, putting on the full armor of God, seeking to know truth, to live in righteousness, to be strengthened by your deep knowledge of the gospel of peace, to live in faith, to live by assurance of salvation, and to wield well the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, if you're crafting a continual life of prayer, that, that prayer is like breathing for you, prayer that's in spiritual alertness and in intercession for fellow believers, prayer continually for and, and having the heart for spreading the gospel, prayer far beyond just praying about your own little wants and needs and praying for those who proclaim the mystery of the gospel to the lost, that is the pathway to joy. If Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 become your lifeblood, that's where joy enters in, that the Word of God commands it, and therefore that's what I seek to do. That's joy. I've spent a lot of time counseling believers and church members, and they're not always the same thing, unfortunately. The misery many believers find themselves in can often be traced to a refusal to obey some aspect of what is commanded, even just in that Christian manifesto of Ephesians 4 through 6. But I don't have time to pray or soak in the word of God. Then you don't have joy. But I think submitting to my husband is a cultural thing in the Bible that doesn't apply now. Then you don't have joy. But I can't be content submitting to an imperfect authority at my work or, or at my church. Then no joy. But I like to make sure I get all my recreation in and waste time on silly things instead of redeeming time because the days are evil. No joy. 
But I can't, I can't let people think I make mistakes or sin, so I will continue to make excuses and not own up to sin, which is basically lying as a lifestyle. No joy. But I don't have time to be equipped for the work of service, to be useful for the church. No joy. Oh, I'll get to that next year. I'll get to that next year. I've been a pastor for a quarter of a century now. If I had a nickel for every time I've heard that, we wouldn't need joyful generosity. But I don't want to speak the truth in love to my brother or sister because I want everyone to like me. No joy. There is no greater joy than being in the center of God's will. Even to your own pain, even to your own hurt, even to your own suffering, even with sacrifice, even with giving up something you think you deserve, there is no greater joy than being in the center of God's will. Now, our text this evening in Nehemiah 8, 13 through 18 is such a gift to us, such a joy. In our observation of Ezra and Nehemiah, of the great faithfulness of God, what we're going to look at this evening is really a living aspect of another, living illustration rather, of another aspect of God's faithfulness. God is going to prove that obedience gives joy. This is a simple message tonight, but it's profound in the way God illustrates this, this correlation between obedience and joy. So let's remind ourselves of where we are in the story. We're six days after finishing the wall of Jerusalem. The descendants of the returned exiles have gathered together at the town square by the water gate of Jerusalem. They're asking to hear the law of God read to them and explained to them. They spent several days preparing for this event. And then All day long, led by their Bible teacher, Ezra, they heard the law of God. They had it explained to them. And you recall that at first, in the beginning of chapter 8 here, the people's reaction was one of grief and sorrow. And Why was that? We saw that it was because they saw how far they have strayed from the standard of the law of God. How disobedient they'd been. But because it was the first day of the seventh month, On the Jewish calendar, a day commanded in the law to be a day of rejoicing. They were given the freedom to rejoice, to have joy. But now the true test comes. Because if we could put it this way, uh, Nehemiah 8, 1 through 12 was kind of like Sunday morning church. But now it's Monday, so to speak. Now the true test comes. Because it's easy to hear the Word of God. It's easy to feign a desire to obey the Word of God. And it's easy to even show some sort of emotional sorrow at how your life hasn't reflected obedience to the Word of God. But now, the very next day, how are they going to actually respond when it's time to actually do something? And our story tonight proves, or shows God rather, proving the connection between obedience and joy. And I want to divide this very simply into two simple sections. First section, leaders of God's people are to call them to obedience. Leaders of God's people are to call them to obedience. In the second section, God's people experience joy when they obey. God's people experience joy when they obey. So first we'll do leaders of God's people are to call them to obedience. And secondly, God's people experience joy when they obey. Let's look at the first section. Leaders of God's people are to call them to obedience. Nehemiah 8.13 Then on the second day... The heads of fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. So after the day of general teaching through the law of God, the next day the the heads of households, the priests and the Levites, 
came back to Ezra to go deeper into the law to learn more. What, what was the reason for this? Well, they needed to be able to adequately shepherd and lead God's people in their respective sub-camps, in their tribes, and so, this, and so forth. This is much like the qualification of an elder of the church as found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, that he is to be able to teach, he is to know the Word of God and be able to impart wisdom from the Word of God. And so in concert with this duty, the believers in the church have a responsibility to obey the teaching of the Word, which comes through the shepherds. I mentioned earlier, Hebrews thirteen seventeen that you obey, which gives joy to the shepherds. I know some of your favorite, some of you have a favorite preacher, Dr. Steve Lawson. He was one of my mentors in my doctoral program. And, and I, I'll read anything he writes because he's so clear. And he wrote this, If a reformation is to come to the church, it must be preceded by a reformation of the pulpit. As the pulpit goes, so goes the church. We've tried to live our ministry around that sort of thinking here, that all ministry flows downward from the pulpit, from the preached Word of God. And so the leaders are first of all fulfilling a duty to study and know God's Word. That has to come first. That must be the starting point. How can a man adequately shepherd God's people until he's immersed himself in the Word of God? I'm always worried about a man who likes leading people but doesn't like studying how to do it. Now, these men had a problem. They were working against the clock. They were just now getting reacquainted with the Word of God, and yet they had immediate shepherding responsibilities. It's sort of like somebody who gets saved, and a month later, he's the pastor of a church of people who got saved two weeks earlier. Up against the clock, that's not an ideal situation. I'm not personally a fan of men lacking in experience and knowledge of the Word, using the sheep of God's flock as guinea pigs to try to figure out a passing desire to teach God's people that they've learned a few facts and now think that they're qualified to instruct the people of God. If you ask any of the young, budding, and learning preachers we have in our midst, men that I've had the privilege of coming alongside, ask any of them, when they have a preaching opportunity, I generally insist on seeing and maybe hearing that sermon first so that they're not slaughtering the sheep instead of feeding the sheep. Because God's people need to be fed. They're not subjects in an experiment. Just because somebody says, I'm called to preach, great, study for five or ten years and then we'll see. Or to put it this way, a shepherd who likes preaching more than he likes studying the Word of God is of great concern to me. There's the possibility of simply liking the feeling of being in front of people or having authority. And that's a dangerous thing for a shepherd no, instead, the study, the personal growth in the Word of God, the Word of God sifting itself through the shepherd's heart and, and dealing with my own heart, that's the primary duty. The preaching and teaching, that's just the outcome. That's just the result of the study. And so these men have gathered here to get a crash course in the Word of God because they have this immediate responsibility as Ezra's teaching them, and they're instantly confronted with the fact that in just 13 days, the Word of God has a requirement. It has a command for them. And they're going to have to lead their people. Verse 14, They found written in the law how Yahweh had commanded by the hand of Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should make the report heard and make a proclamation of it passed throughout all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, 
Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Numerous Old Testament law texts command the Feast of Booths. Leviticus 23.39 is specific that it begins on the 15th day of the seventh month. The leaders have learned about this on the second day, so they have just under two weeks to make this happen nationwide. Now let's take a moment and talk about the Feast of Booths. What is this? Or the, or the Feast of the Sukkah in, in Hebrew. It's the last in the series of festivals given to Israel, recorded in Leviticus 23. It is very much a thanksgiving festival. It is, it's upbeat. It's, it's happy. This was the third and the final occasion of the year when all the adult Jewish males were required to go to Jerusalem to appear personally before the Lord. Now, by the time we get to Jesus' day, because so many Jews have been dispersed during the two exiles, one by Assyria and one by Babylon, if you were on one of the roads to Jerusalem, as you got closer, you see more and more people coming from all directions, hundreds of thousands of people coming from Judea, from Galilee, even Jews that had been dispersed during the, the exile, the diaspora Jews. And, and as you approach the city, and especially as you enter the city, what you would see is it looks like the world's biggest camp out. The Jews would build a temporary shelter of branches, a sukkah. It would be little booths in courtyards, on rooftops, in and, and all around Jerusalem. They were everywhere during this time. And in fact, over time, by, by the time Jesus arrived on the scene, a certain building code had even developed. It had to be at least four by four feet wide and long. It had to have enough roof of leaves and straw to provide shade, but enough holes in it to see the stars at night. You weren't supposed to just build a miniature real house. It had to be decorated and had to be attractive. That's what got the ladies involved, I guess. And during this holiday week, you had to spend most of the time in the booth and less time in your home if you were living locally. Most, if not all, your meals were to be eaten in this booth. It was a joyful holiday filled with feasting every day, celebration every day. In fact, it was also known as the Feast of the Ingathering because it was held at the end of the harvest season. Exodus 23, 16, you shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. But the feast of booths or feast of tabernacles, we might say the feast of camping tents, it had a memorial purpose also. It was a time to remember when Israel lived in tents, when they lived in temporary shelters as God led them through the wilderness and provided for every one of their needs. Even as God was chastening Israel, punishing them by having them wander in the wilderness, He provided for them so graciously. He gave manna to them every day to eat as God's provision. Deuteronomy 29.5, Moses reminds Israel that for 40 years, quote, your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. Can you imagine a pair of shoes lasting 40 years? So it was a memorial Thanksgiving time to remember God's gracious provision. They never had what they, ne what they needed for tomorrow. They always had what they needed for today. The Feast of Booths was the last seven days. The eighth day ended the festival with a very solemn gathering, a solemn assembly. No labor was permitted on the first day or on the eighth day of the feast. 
We have something like that we can relate to this time of the year, the week before, between Christmas and New Year's. It's, you might be working, but there's a, there's a different feel to it. That's, and that's what this was. It was, a, it was a holiday time with a different feel. Numbers 29 outlined the animals that were to be offered as sacrifices. They were to offer burnt offerings, grain offerings, sin offerings. Every single day, every day, offerings were given in gratitude to the Lord and for the continued favor of the Lord. And what was great about the Feast of Booths is that it came at the cleanest time of the year, spiritually speaking. It was just five days after the required Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, a, a day of fasting and sacrifice that reminded Israel of Yahweh's holiness in comparison to their own sinfulness. And so now, the Feast of Booths, while it includes the sacrifices outlined in Numbers 29, this is a really a true celebration unlike the much more somber atmosphere of the Day of Atonement. Now, this is so important here because the leaders of God's people have just rediscovered this prescribed feast of booths. They have studied the word of God. And listen, they do not worry about what people will think if they call them to obedience. They do not read a few books on how to preach palatable sermons on the feast of booths so that they don't offend very many people. And they do not wonder if that command written a thousand years earlier, was just cultural and only applied in Moses' day. The response of the leaders of God's people was to study the Word of God, and the very day they learned this, they began obeying. And they sent out to all the people that they were to go into the hills and gather branches and make booths. And here's the key phrase. Here is what leaders are to call people to. The very end of verse 15, as it is written... They appealed to the singular authority of the Word of God and the Word of God alone. There were no great personalities saying, do it because I said so. They said, as it is written. That's our authority. And so the leaders of God's people are to call them to obedience. And the second part we'll call God's people experience joy when they obey. Verse 16, so the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. What a joy that the people are softened by the preaching of God's word, the proclamation of the word of God before and just in the days before their hearts are tenderized, they're convicted by their own disobedience and and what's their response? They jump at this opportunity to respond to God's word. They jump at this chance to show a, a tangible action in obedience to God's good and perfect law. I want you to notice something here. In the instructions from the leaders in verse 15, there are three imperatives, three commands. Go into the hills, bring the branches, make booths. They're specific. They're, they were precise. And now in verse 16, there's corresponding obedience to those three imperatives. The people went out into the hills, they brought branches, and they made booths. Precision in teaching, precision in obedience. That's how God's leaders and God's people work together in concert. And what a joyous time. You have these booths, these little camping structures all over the place. Those with homes in Jerusalem would build them on their own rooftops. Every courtyard, every square, all the major gates, they're everywhere. And in this time during Ezra and Nehemiah, tens of thousands of people are gathered 
all together to celebrate God's kindness and provision to them. But there's a stunning fact that we're about to see in verse 17, one that is shameful, one that is eye-opening, and one that explains why the exile of God's people eventually happened. We'll get to it in just a moment. Verse 17 The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. The sons of Israel had indeed, here it is, not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. There's unity. There's a completeness of obedience. No one disobeyed. The people were one in their desire to respond to the word of God. And how long had it been since Israel had really taken the Feast of Booths seriously? Approximately one year thousand years that's shameful no wonder they ended up going down it had been all the way back since the time of Joshua and the conquest of Canaan now certainly the feast of booths had been observed but not within the complete obedience to every detail by the entire population and boy the plethora of examples and, and applications we could make to the church could be endless we could stay here all night but suffice to say that when any church as a whole decides to compromise on one little thing and then one more and then one more, you blink and now you've compromised on everything. And now, ultimately, you could even say, I'm not even certain that 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 qualifies as a church. They have unqualified leaders. They have unsaved members. That's not a church. But what was the result of this obedience? They, They were called back to obedience. And what happened? The end of verse 17 And there was exceedingly great gladness. In Hebrew, exceedingly great gladness means exceedingly great gladness. There's no mystery to this. They were happy. They were joyful. Because God's people experience joy when they obey. And, And we could add some adverbs, some descriptors. That God's people experience joy when they obey fully. God's people experience joy when they obey unreservedly. God's people experience joy when they obey with a whole heart. God's people experience joy when they trust in the Lord's perfect word. God's people experience joy when they obey with submission to the leaders, with unity, with togetherness, with precision, and a desire to obey each aspect of the word. Earlier, when I was using Ephesians 4 through 6 to start our thinking, about obeying the Lord with precision, some of the commands I mentioned perfectly illustrate this wholehearted obedience, this this all-in attitude. We can think of Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 5, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the integrity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, serving with good will as to the Lord and not to men. What is integrity? Integrity comes from a word that means to match. That what you say matches what you do. Or to put it another way, integrity is what you do when you think no one's looking. That you're still obeying the Lord from the heart. Or we could consider Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for this is full-hearted obedience, striving to, to cherish a wife. 
taking the very standard of Christ himself, not trying to do a few dutiful, nice things to check the list off, to, to get it over with every once in a while, but loving her, cherishing her, thanking God for every day you have with her to serve her needs, to sacrifice for her. We could consider Ephesians 5.22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Not trying to appear to be subject, not trying to make conditions, not trying to drag your feet reluctantly, but as to the Lord, as if it is the Lord Christ. We could consider Ephesians 6.1, and yes, children are capable of this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. The children who are genuine believers in Christ demonstrate their love for Christ by obeying their parents. And this is a very simple question that parents can ask children. Do you claim to be a Christian? Yes, you know I'm a Christian. I was baptized last year, Dad. Well, you're disobeying me right now. Do you love the Lord? Yes, I love the Lord. What does the Bible say? That if I love the Lord, then I'll obey you. It's a very simple choice you present to children. That all-in attitude with a soft heart, so filled with joy. What's the alternative? The alternative is to play Christian. The alternative is to edit God's word, to let cultural influences hold sway over you, to analyze and negotiate and redefine terms to fit modern so-called sensibilities. And then you go on social media and you try to get a really big following of a bunch of other people who are playing Christian so that you can feel good about yourself. But that doesn't produce joy. All that produces is a self-willed stubbornness that leads to a hardened heart and ultimately defeats joy and peace in the life of the genuine believer in Christ. You know what another word for that softened heart I've been talking about is? It's, it's humility. And if you are humble at the, at the lowest possible level, if you are as low as you can go, nothing can disappoint you, right? Nothing can make you angry because you have no rights. You, can get, you can't get run over when you're as flat as the road already. But the person that is self-willed and editing God's word, trying to play Christian, there's no joy there. There's no peace. There's no contentment. There's no delight. And look at what God's people did during this time of feasting and sacrifice and gathering together. Verse 18, to me, this is the greatest thing you could do when you gather together. And he read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day, And they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the legal judgment. The commands concerning the Feast of Booths found in Deuteronomy chapter 31, 9 through 13, indicated that every seven years during the sabbatical year in Israel, the entire law was to be read to everyone. So apparently, it seems that this occasion falls on the sabbatical year. And now the people of Israel have heard the entire law of God at least twice in totality in a period of 23 days. It's safe to say that the Jews hadn't been that saturated in God's word for centuries. By the way, in the total story of Nehemiah chapter 8, first the reading of God's law in verses 1 through 12 and then the obedience to God's law in verses 13 through 18 We see the theme of joy with two causes. The reading and explanation of the Bible, verse 12 says, they celebrated with great gladness because they understood the word which had been made known to them. That's one of my favorite parts of preaching. 
because I get to see on your faces as we go through something that I'm pretty certain some of you haven't ever heard before and we get to it, I see this. And I love that. I live for that moment. That is the joy you experience as the Word of God opens up to you. So the reading and explanation of the Bible, that caused joy. And the second cause for joy was the obedience to what they've heard. There was exceedingly great gladness. I said this is a simple message and it really is. You want to be a Christian who experiences joy? You want to be part of a church that is filled with joy? Then you take in the Word of God for joy and you obey the Word of God for joy. That's it. That is the Christian life. Now, as we've done in many of our messages in Ezra and Nehemiah, I'd like to switch gears here for a moment and I want to apply this text in three different ways and kind of growing concentric circles I want to talk about our growth in Christ-likeness and apply this in a very specific way. And secondly, I want to show you the road to the cross from this text. Every text of the Bible has a road to the cross. And I'd also like to show you the implications for the coming kingdom of Christ on earth. Because remember, the whole story of Ezra and Nehemiah ends with a fizzle. That the kingdom tried to restart and it didn't. And so we always want to find that roadway all the way to the coming kingdom. But first we'll start with the smallest of the concentric circles... Let's consider our own growth in Christ-likeness. The end of the Feast of Booths was more somber than the seven days of feasting and celebration. It was a heightened time of a, of a very important and sobering worship gathering. And I want you to notice what they did on the eighth day, the final day. Verse 18, in the middle of the verse, and they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the legal judgment. What was this final day for? This final day served as a chance to reflect on what they had heard in the scriptures for the previous seven days, to to meditate on it, to chew on it, to reflect on it. This reflection, pictured here in terms of a solemn day, in other places, the word that is often used is meditate. There are numerous examples in the Psalms of meditation in particular. And let me give you a few and kind of build this case for you. Psalm 1, verse 2, But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in this law, in his law rather, he meditates day and night. This is a Hebrew word that means to murmur, to mutter. And let me just make a clear distinction here for a moment. The, the world has stolen the word meditation. The Bible had it first, just so you know. In the world sense of meditation, you empty your mind, right? Which is useless because Satan will fill it with junk. The Bible's use of meditation is that your mind is filled up with truth. You, you murmur the truth. You mutter the truth. You repeat the truth. The same Hebrew word is used in Psalm 63, verse 6. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. If we went to Psalm 77, verse 12, we get a different flavor of the idea, still translated meditate. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Meditate here is a different Hebrew word, which includes the idea of thinking on God's truth, being filled with gratitude and praise and thanksgiving. Muse is the same word translated meditate in the earlier Psalms to murmur or to mutter. 
We could consider Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. This is the same root word as, as Psalm 77, 12. Thinking on God's truth with gratitude and with praise. Psalm 143, 5. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all you have done. I muse on the work of your hands. Again, you have both ideas here. Thinking on God's truth with gratitude and praise and murmuring, muttering, repeating this truth to yourself. Chewing on it. Letting it filter through your heart and your mind. Now, with that background, let me ask a seemingly completely unrelated question. Why can a Christian... Hear the word of God preached, even listening to hundreds or thousands of sermons and still be robbed of joy, still be stagnant in his faith, still have that hardened heart. Because the two added elements after hearing the word of God are missing. Obedience to the word and meditating on the word. Taking time to, to chew on it, to contemplate it, to truly ask questions what does the truth I just learned speak to my heart, to my life, to my mind? You know, what sin does this convict me of? What correction does this bring to my understanding of God? Could I tell you one of the great secrets to listening to a sermon effectively? And that is to walk through these doors already praying, Lord, my heart is open. Tear it apart. Take me apart. Take me down. Take out sin. Take out impurity. Take out those things that are idols in my life. You come in every Sunday with that attitude your heart will grow soft and soft and soft. The clear pattern I've established just from Psalms alone is that once truth is heard, it must be contemplated, it must be thought about, it must be deepened in your soul. And I can't do that for you. It has to be you doing this. And by the way, this is one of the purposes of our sermon-based small groups. Our sermon-based small groups are basically group meditations on the Word of God diving more deeply into the truths and driving them into the heart. And if you were to ask the writers that I've quoted so far, Psalm 1, Psalm 63, Psalm 77, 119, Psalm 143, they would tell you that the meditation, the contemplation, the inward application of the truth, that's the key to a joyful walk with the Lord. That's the key to that softened heart that creates obedience. In fact, Psalm 77 itself is a great example. You don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you the story of it. The first nine verses of Psalm 77 are the complaints and the woes of the psalmist. You can almost hear the whine in it. But then the psalmist accurately diagnoses his spiritual weakness. In, in verse 10, he declares that it's his emotion, it's the grief that he's feeling that's leading him to believe that God has failed him. So he changes directions. And how does he do this? Verse 11, I shall remember the deeds of Yah. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will, here it is, meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. And now we get, for the rest of the psalm, the results of his meditation, thinking upon the truth. And he goes from whining to this. Oh God, your way is holy. What God is great like God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your strength among the peoples. You have by your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, 
The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were in anguish. The deeps also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth a sound. Your arrows went here and there. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea and your paths in the mighty waters, but your footprints were not known. And you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. What is that? That's about eight verses contemplating the Red Sea crossing alone. That's meditating on the word and that's victory. He's learned the truth of God and now he's mentally rehearsing these truths. And in this case, writing down his meditation in what we have as Psalm 77, 13 through 20. So if you want to accelerate your growth in Christ's likeness, you can't just swallow truth. You have to chew on it. You have to think on it. And I would urge you to make time for this, make a system and a schedule for this. And by the way, that's going to be the entire point of our women's retreat in late March. We're going to use Psalm 23 to learn how to glean truth from Scripture so that you can chew on it, so that you might obey it and be transformed by it. I'd like to consider the road to the cross of Christ from our text this evening. And I'm going to cheat a little here. We're going to use the New Testament to help us. Turn with me to John chapter 7. While you're finding John 7, let me give you a little more background. To the Jews, the the sukkah, the tents... Temporary shelters, they weren't just reminiscent of their personal accommodations when they were in the desert. The sukkah also spoke of the the sukkah of God. As Numbers chapter 9 records that over the tabernacle, the, the holy place where God met with His people, essentially the tent of God, over the tabernacle, the cloud and the fire of the glory of God would rest, indicating that He was present with them this was the sukkah of god this was god tabernacling with them so to speak and eventually rabbis coined the expression from the sukkah of god to the shekinah or the shekinah glory the manifest presence of god seen as both covering and as light psalm 105 39 he spread a cloud for covering and fire to give light by night it was the place where god chose to dwell with his people second chronicles 6 Now, this is so important in the history of Israel. Ezekiel 10 and 11 records the sukkah of God, the Shekinah glory leaving the temple because of their disobedience. The glory of God left. And so the Feast of Booths, the Feast of the Sukkah, had prophetic significance to the Jew as well. It was looking ahead to the Messianic age when Messiah God would come and dwell with them, would tabernacle with them once again. This is pretty significant in the Gospel of John. In the opening verses in John's Gospel, Christ is proclaimed in those exact terms. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory. Here in John 7, Jesus used the Feast of Booths as an illustration for his messianic claims. There would be now hundreds of thousands of Jews at the Feast of Booths. What better time to present himself at the festival with so many messianic implications? Look at verse 25 of chapter 7. Jesus is at the Feast of Booths and he is teaching. 
Verse 25, so some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And look, he is speaking openly and they are saying nothing to him. Do the rulers truly know that this is the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. The Jews wrongly said that when Messiah comes, no one knows where he's coming from. It's going to be mysterious. But, But Jesus said that Messiah is known. He's come from heaven. He's come from his father. And he's presenting himself here as the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. He's crying out to them as God tenting, tabernacling with his people that God is here. But how would they respond? Verse 30, so they were seeking to seize him, yet no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. His hour speaks of the coming arrest, torture, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. And so instead of celebrating that the Feast of Booths was fulfilled in Christ, they murdered their Messiah. Now speaking of fulfilling the Feast of Booths, how does our text Tonight in Nehemiah 8, lead us all the way to the road to Christ's coming kingdom in the future. Zechariah 14 records the terrifying and glorious return of Christ when he slays all of his enemies, when he takes over as king over all the earth. And once Jesus establishes his reign, establishes his rule on the earth, guess what gets restarted now? Not under the law of Moses, but under the new millennial kingdom law. Guess what comes up again? The believing survivors of the Great Tribulation will receive a command for them, for their descendants for a thousand years. Zechariah 14, 16. Then it will be that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, Yahweh of hosts, and to celebrate, guess what? The Feast of Booths. It's coming back. You remember that all of Ezra and Nehemiah is about an attempt to restart the kingdom of Israel and it it fizzles, it's a shadow of what's really coming. And so just as the descendants of the exiles finally celebrated the Feast of Booths in anticipation of the coming kingdom when Messiah has arrived and, and when Messiah did arrive and proclaimed himself at the Feast of Booths and he was rejected, someday when Christ returns, He will reinstitute the Feast of Booths. And this time, it's not just for Israel. It's for the whole world. Or if I could put it this way, practice up on building your little tents. Because in the kingdom of Christ, the whole world will gather to celebrate Christ, the one who reigns in person on earth. You want joy in the Lord? You want joy in Christ? I said this is a simple message, and it is. Be saturated in the Word of God. Meditate on the Word of God. Obey the Word of God. And that's what brings joy. And then as one last little icing on the cake, you await for the arrival of the one that John's Gospel calls the Word made flesh. There's the Christian life in 51 minutes. It is not that complex. One of my prayers for you, and I pray for you by name, As often as I can, I pray for you as a church every day 
But there will be a day that every one of us stands before the Lord and we praise the Lord for our salvation being secure, the assurance of our salvation. But what a shame it would be to have walked through the majority of your life without joy. What a shame it would be to walk through the majority of your life filled with anger and angst and pickiness and having a growing list of people that you're upset with. That's no way to live the Christian life. My prayer is that when you stand before the Lord, the ultimate final sanctification isn't that great of a jump from where you ended up in this life. Softened hearts comes from those who hear the word of God, meditate on the word of God, and obey the word of God, and that's joy. There's the Christian life. Let's pray. Our Father, you have proven that obedience gives joy. You have given us every tool we need We have the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God. We have the people of God. We have the Messiah of God. We have all that we need. We have a a certain future. We have a certain present. The Lord Jesus Himself told us that we could pray, give us this day our daily bread. We have all that we need. Lord, I'm burdened for those that would walk through their life filled with angst and filled with bitterness and upsetness and and oversensitivity to everything. Instead, Lord, make us those who walk through this life with joy, with with almost a, a floating sensation of just delighting in your word and knowing that, that if we humble ourselves Now you will exalt us at the proper time. I pray for those among us, Lord, who struggle with this, who know that they struggle with with bitterness and with anger and with those internal resentments and continually thinking that everything around them needs to be better or more perfect and therefore they, they aren't able to experience joy. I pray for them, Lord. I pray that they would have that joy of humbling themselves before you, bowing before you, taking your word, chewing on it, meditating on it, thinking upon it, pondering it, obeying it. I pray for us as a church, Lord, that we would be characterized by believers with soft, tender hearts to the Lord, loving one another, preferring one another, seeing each other as more important than ourselves. We pray in that grand day when Grace Bible Church stands before Christ that that would be his pronouncement, that that was our character. Also that Christ might receive the glory and we might give him all the honor that is due to his name. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.